So as I said a few moments ago, this Advent, we're looking at Jesus, as we always do, but this Advent, through the eyes of one man, whose simple job it was to point to him and to get people prepared to meet him. And as usual, some of the people in our passage, they miss the point, and they seem to be far more interested in the messenger than the message. This happens all the time. This is a normal thing. You know, God created all things, and his spirit is is hovering and brooding over the waters at creation. And, And through the same spirit, he prophesied that one day he would incarnate and dwell among us. And then being conceived of that very same spirit, and then later filled with that spirit, he healed the sick, and he gave sight to the blind, and he even raised the dead as a foretaste of what was to come one day. And then with the strength of the Holy Spirit, he chose to take on sin. Though uniquely he was without sin, he bore that sin for us on the cross, and he submitted to death, though he never needed to do so. He submitted to death in the way that he submitted to human life. And as he did so, exquisitely, he fulfilled over 500 prophecies that had been written down hundreds of years before through the power and the inspiration of the very same Spirit, then rising from the dead through the Spirit. He breathed that same Spirit into us. And we hear this miraculous story every single week in the singing of songs and in the teaching and in the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and in the prayers. Everything that we do in church points towards this. Even your decision to turn on or tune in or, or come and sit here today was in some way motivated by the calling of the same Spirit. And if anything clicks today as I preach in your heart and suddenly makes sense, that is the Holy Spirit as well. And at the end of the service or the broadcast or the podcast or the book or whatever it is that you've been engaging with, we say, wow, isn't that preacher brilliant? Like, no, no, no. We have this weird culture, don't we, in church of elevating humans, of getting really interested in, in people and giving people special status. You know, we have favorite preachers and we have favorite musicians and, you know, they can't help it if they're good, but, you know, it's great they bless us with their gifts, but the messenger must never, ever become more interesting than the message. It's not about people with a platform. It's about Jesus. You listen to any of the greatest preachers and Christian leaders, the most gifted musicians and ministers throughout history, and there's a theme that always appears, and that is that they just want to point to Jesus. From Wesley to Wimber, they just want to point people to Jesus and prepare people to meet him. John is like the, the, the archetype of that model. And he does precisely that. Look at with me at verse 19. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. So the ruling council sends out the temple police to examine John. And uh, this is no small thing. A group very much like this one questioned Jesus himself before having him killed. This is the feds, and they've come out looking for trouble. 
And they, they clearly expect to find a man who, like so many others, is, is full of himself and all about himself. But he's not. He's full of the Spirit. Because of that, he's all about Jesus. For example, they say to him, who are you? And he says in verse 20, let me start, first of all, by making it abundantly clear who I am not. I am not the Christ. I'm not your savior. Don't treat me like I am. You'd be very disappointed if you think I'm your savior. Now, this is funny because... At the time, many people claimed to be the Christ. It was a somewhat common thing for people to go around claiming to be him. I think they have been dispatched, these feds, to discover him, catch him in the act of claiming too much about himself. And he's like, nope, not me. Nothing to see here. Move along. So they asked him in verse 21, right then, are you Elijah, perhaps? Let's just work down the list of big names till we catch him pretending to be one of them. Elijah, Old Testament prophet, it was promised in Malachi chapter 4, one day would return to usher in a new messianic age. And, okay, he might not be the Messiah, but might he be the sort of warm-up act? Can we pin this on him? Nope, he says, not me either. Which is kind of funny, because he kind of is, actually. Luke 1.17 says that John was a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. But I guess he's just so focused on Jesus Christ that he hasn't even thought about himself. So, all right, they say, are you the prophet? Deuteronomy 18, Moses told them to expect in the last days someone like himself to come as well. And he says, no, I'm not the prophet either. I'm none of these people. And he says, I'm a nobody. And... By the way, there is an incalculable, unbridgeable gulf between me and the Christ. Stop talking about me. He says in verse 27 that he, John the Baptist, is not even worthy to untie the strap of the sandals of the one who is to come. A little bit of context for us. At the time when a Jewish master came home, a servant would untie his sandals at the door. Uh, but it was considered to be such a menial job to do that if it was a mixed household of both Jewish and Gentile servants, no Jewish servant would ever touch his master's feet. They'd get a Gentile to do it in a mixed household. They would literally work down the list of nobodies till they found the most nobody of nobodies, and they'd say, you do it. John says, I am not even worthy for that. So great is this Christ that no one is ever worthy of him. Verse 22, so they said to him, well, who are you then? What do you say about yourself? Because so far he's actually said nothing about himself. And he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. It's a quote from Isaiah, or as Robert would say, Isaiah, and I guess about 300 million other people would say it that way too. So you win. And he simply says, my job is really easy. Number one, it is to point to Jesus. And number two, it is to prepare people to meet Jesus. Then he does it. And it's here, isn't it, that we meet one of the central problems of Christianity. Actually, one of the central problems that every single theology faces. 
At least every theistic belief faces this problem. If God is so holy and we are so unworthy, then how could we possibly ever do anything to prepare ourselves to meet him? If there's an unbridgeable gap, then how could we ever bridge it? It's a central problem that every single theistic faith system tries to resolve. How do imperfect people prepare for the perfect God? Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Look, and he points to Jesus, job done, who takes away the sin of the world. You don't prepare for Jesus. Jesus prepares you for Jesus. It's a unique claim of the Christian faith. Now, scholars have got themselves into a tizzy over this particular phrase, Lamb of God. And I wouldn't say they've had a bar fight, but they've certainly sent some strong emails to each other. (laughs) Because Lamb of God can mean two very different kind of things, and they're arguing about which one it is that John means. I think that understanding both meanings is key to resolving this tension of how imperfect people prepare for a perfect God. I think if you can see both meanings of Lamb of God, then the Holy Spirit is making something click. First, Lamb of God gives us this image of a very submissive kind of a God, a weak God, a peaceful God. And our reading from Isaiah describes Jesus the Messiah in this way, as a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and says he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It's a sacrificial lamb that we're looking at here. It is a God who is judged, who is slain for our sins, like a lamb to the slaughter. Lamb of God can also mean literally the very opposite of this thing as well. Slightly less well-known. But in Jewish thought at the time, Lamb of God was considered to be quite a strong image. And they knew that one day the Lamb of God would come as a warrior or as a judge to defeat sin. He would take it away by defeating it. And the book of Revelation also picks up on this image because where is the Lamb in the book of Revelation? But on the throne. The Lamb is enthroned and sits upon the seat of judgment as a judge. And we could go around in circles debating precisely what it is that John means when he says Lamb of God. Is it the victim or the victor? Is it the judge or the, the, the judge? The judged, you know, is he? Which is he? Well, I think we missed the point with these strongly worded emails. Because Christ is uniquely both. He's uniquely the judge and the judged, the victim and the victor. It is Jesus who prepares us to meet Jesus. The judge is judged. Perfect prepares you for perfect. He prepares you for himself. It says, with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is the one who gets you ready to meet himself. That's grace. Now, I was reading an article the other day, a very important article, about kids and video games. And uh, the author was saying that he thought the very big problem for our generation, particularly caused by video games, and the kids that play them today, 
is that if they make a mistake, then they know they can just start again. And, uh, you know, racing game, you mess up a corner, you just rewind it and break slightly earlier next time. You know, shooting game, you, you lose, just rewind and throw a grenade because you know where the bad guy is this time. And you keep doing this, a redo, until you win. And the author of the article said, this is a problem for us as a culture because we're setting our kids up to fail with this idea because in the real world, you can't just start again. And I was reading this article thinking, no, actually in the real world, you can. I think my kids innately see something that for my generation seems a lot harder to grasp. That is that you can start again. I think they have an advantage on us here. Now, starting again does not change history. Grace is not a time machine. You did lose, and probably all your friends saw it happen. It doesn't change the past, this grace, but it does change the future. So a side point for you. I've entered their world, the world of the video game. Kat and I have been playing these uh, team games with our kids, all four of us, play one game together on a team. And it's fun because the children have to rely on us in order to complete the level. And I can tell you, they do not forget when you make a mistake. They paused the game the other day because I was confused and I didn't know what I was doing. And actually, I got us all blown up. And uh, one of them walked up to the screen and tapped on the screen and went, Dad, it's right here! And pointed at this flashing button that actually upon closer reflection, was rather obvious. (laughs) I gave them the speech. I said, I have five degrees. I'm not going to be schooled by an (laughs) 11-year-old. It's what I think my kids like, is they like grace for themselves, and they like judgment for everybody else. And uh, is that not all of us? Are they just holding up a lens to every one of us in this room? We love grace for ourselves and judgment for everybody else. Perhaps we need to be schooled by each other. Perhaps there's something to learn from this generation. Perhaps we all need to know that we can, in fact, start again. Perhaps we need to know this. The feature, by the way, of this piece of computer programming that allows you just to pause the game or start again is even called autosave. I mean, could it be any better? (laughs) Could it be any more obvious? We're not even responsible for initiating the save. We just get to benefit from it. It's what we preach every week. My kids have played a game, and they can see what we preach every week. Grace means that it is God who saves you. It is God who prepares you to be saved. It is God who initiates salvation. It is God who completes salvation. It's all about Jesus. And look what Jesus offers to you. Not just a save. Jesus is not just about getting you to scrape into heaven and then the job is done. Jesus offers more than a save. He offers you a victory as well. See, people are coming out to John to be baptized, which is awesome. It's a sign of their repentance that they would undergo this process with water. It's an indication of their desire to be saved. Though we know that it was the Spirit that nudged them to go out and see him. And what Jesus offers, though, is infinitely more, infinitely more. A baptism, not just of water, 
but a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And verse 33, John says, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus offers to immerse us in the very same spirit that was there at creation. The same spirit that was there when he was conceived. The same spirit that was there when he was baptized. The same spirit that was there when he performed these miracles and raised the dead. The same spirit that was there when he submitted to crucifixion. And the same spirit that rose him from the dead. And the same spirit that just went crazy at Pentecost. That same spirit is the spirit into which we are baptized when we believe. People say to me, you one of those weird Holy Spirit Christians? I'm like, yeah, and a Jesus one, and a Father one, yeah, yeah, I like the whole Trinity, actually. They're awesome. <laughs> Just, yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> mm, can, yeah, okay. Scholar Colin, a scholar, Colin Cruz. Let's, let's regain her. I, th- I think he should be called a Scolin. Scolin Cruz says this. Jesus is the spirit baptizer, and he plunges all those who believe in him into the spirit. Isn't that awesome? Jesus immerses you in the spirit, immerses you in God. And so I want you to know this morning, the takeaway is this, that if you've been saved, you've not just been saved. From that point on, you've become a winner. You've become imbued with the same spirit. You've become filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now lives in you. And he sends you out in the power of the same Holy Spirit. To do what? To point to Jesus and to prepare people to meet him. And as you do, you know really it is Jesus who is preparing them. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, please make us into those weird Holy Spirit Christians. I pray, God, for all of the wonderful things that you do through your Holy Spirit to be manifest in this church this season, from great healing to great gifts of prophecy and tongues, through to that gentle, restorative, quiet nudge. Come alongside us, Holy Spirit, we pray, and dwell within us, and equip us, and convict us, and encourage us, and comfort us. We thank you that you are, at the same time, this gentle God who is also a warrior and a judge. We thank you that you're on our side. We thank you that you save us and initiate that save. And we could talk about you all day, Lord God, and never, ever run out of things to say. So bless us, we pray, and prepare us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.